BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. A lot coming up in today's program. We're doing a conversations with great minds with Mary Trump on her new book, The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. But today is day 16 of the hunger strike of my colleague on Sirius XM Radio, Joe Madison. And, uh, you know, will he survive? I, we're all very concerned about this and, uh, and about voting rights, which is what he is hunger striking for. On the line with us, the Black Eagle, Joe Madison. Joe, welcome back to the program. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing fine. You know, I will respond to the one thing, will I survive? The question really should be, will our democracy survive if we don't get one of these two bills passed, the Freedom to Vote Act? or the John Lewis Voter Advancement Act. That's really the concern. And I don't know if any of us, quite honestly, want to survive if democracy is destroyed or defeated by, you know, 50 senators that don't seem to have the courage to do what their predecessors did, what, in 2006, when 98 members of the Senate voted to, by the way, extend the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So that's what I'm motivated to do what I'm doing. And quite honestly, Tom, the response has been overwhelming because everybody seems to be consolidating their efforts to convince the Senate to do the right thing. Yeah. Joe, by the way, can be heard every morning, weekdays, 6 to 10 a.m. on Sirius XM channel. 126. And uh, you can find all the information about him at joemadison.com. You can tweet him at Madison Sirius XM. What kind of reception are you getting from elected officials? How, what sort of feedback have you got? Well, the biggest feedback has come from people like Senator Jeff Merkley, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, is like, keep doing what you're doing. I've heard from former Attorney General Eric Holder, who is in conversation with Senate Majority Leader Schumer, he said, I mean, he's pushing uh, Schumer. I heard from Congressman Clyburn, who uh, said that they think they would they'd be able to get the John Lewis bill through. And then I'm hearing from state legislators and these are basically Democrats, as you can imagine, who are saying, you know, we're going to do what we can. I mean, that's what's kind of keeping my spirits up, especially talking to people who seem to be having some back-channel discussions. The Senate is out this whole week. Are, there, are, there coming, are they coming back next week? Is that when you're hoping that they will punch a hole in the, in the filibuster and allow for a vote on voting rights legislation? Look, I don't, I, I, you know, that, that, that my hope is while they're out, your audience, my audience, and anybody else's audience, look, no one person can do this alone. This isn't right. about me. This is about everybody. You, you know, the senators at home, they're at home like you are and everybody else enjoying their Thanksgiving dinner and, and, and they should reflect on what their obligation is 
so that when they come back, and yes, I know that the Build Better Back uh, 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 bill has got to be priority, but you know, I, I said it the other, I, I had a political science uh, professor from Howard University said the Democrats have got to learn how to pat their head and rub their stomach at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, and, 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 you know, like we used to do when we were kids. Right. So they can't they can't waste time coming back. And then because the calendar is our enemy at this point in time. And so they if they if, he, if, if they can explode, if they can, as you call it, nuke the filibuster, mm-hmm. then that is a major step. Or, quite honestly, as Senator Kane uh, told me from Virginia, uh, the uh, what is it? The Freedom to Vote Act could encompass uh, also the the uh, John Lewis voter uh, a bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've got three bites at the apple. Uh, just take one. And I know people are very pessimistic that they that oh they're not going to find ten Republicans who are honest enough to know that they should be uh, 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 voting uh, for this. Uh, but, you know, I guess miracles do happen. It'll probably take a miracle. But, you know, the point is, this is the time, while everyone is at home, to put the pressure on and, 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 and hold their feet to the, to the fire. Um, and, and I'll say this without fear of contradiction. You know, damn it, um, Joe Biden wouldn't have been able to, to sign that landmark bill of what the infrastructure we put that pin in his hand and so he owes us and then i told you i had was it attorney general clapper on my show mm-hmm. and he said one of the things people should understand is that putin and the chinese are loving this and they can't they they're hoping that these bills don't pass and so i you know i'm just simply saying this is not just about the black vote, uh, although I think we were targeted because of it, but it's all our allies and our friends. It's it's uh, the elderly, like up in Wisconsin. That situation is crazy with the el- uh, nursing home situation where they want to put voter registration workers in jail, as right. proposed by Senator Johnson. You know, this is the time to really push. And so I'm working with you and any organization out there, and people are really responding. That's great. I mean, you're so right, Joe. And, and what's, what's astonishing to me, and I'd, I'd love to get your take on how America has changed, is that, you know, the, last, this, the, the Voting Rights Act had to be renewed, as I recall, every 10 years. And here it is, you know, the last time it was renewed, all the Republicans voted for it. Then the Supreme Court gutted it, and now none of the Republicans have an interest in this. What, in your opinion, caused such a change in the GOP? Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I mean, Donald Trump. I mean, that's that's exactly what has has caused this change. I mean, you know, this 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 is it, and the fact that he got defeated, he got defeated. It, look, if he had not gotten defeated. There wouldn't be these voter suppression laws that you talk about and I talk about on 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 our show, uh, Tom. Um, and 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 and, uh, and this is this is history repeating itself from 1877, as you talked about the end of the first Reconstruction. Tom, gee, what what did they go after? The first thing that these white Southerners uh, when they saw their world turned upside down, where free, newly freed slaves uh, ended up holding office, being elected to the Senate, being elected to Congress, being elected to state legislatures. They, they, it, they then cut that deal with Rutherford B. Hayes. And the first thing they went after was the vote. And what yeah. happened? They started assassinating people, lynching people. Uh, uh, this, uh, you know, and, and so here's we are now, you know, uh, uh, two, three, four generations later. And uh, it's like, what's the first thing they want to go after? The vote. And so we have an obligation uh, to 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 uh, 
to protect democracy. So how, look, I came up with, I decided I've got to do something personally. I've, and, I, and, I, and I'm not going to sit back and have my children uh, uh, t- 10, 20, 30 years from now saying that, my, that their father let this happen. Yeah. And that's and that's the attitude. So it's you know some people can do a hunger strike. Some people are doing petitions. Some folks are wearing uh, the, the their uh, their the senators' lines and and they're faxing and texting and and but everybody can can do something. They, and and so I hope when they return uh, from their Thanksgiving while they're on their Thanksgiving recess, Tom. That they will, that they will, uh, uh, that they will focus on 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 what on this on this situation and do the right thing and put put this on the front burner. Yeah, it's, and get this done. It is critical stuff. Joe Madison on day 16 of his hunger strike. JoeMadison.com. He's uh, you can hear him on SiriusXM every weekday, 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern time on Sirius Channel 126. Uh, Madison Sirius XM on Twitter. Joe, thanks so much for dropping by and good luck. Please take good care of yourself. This is the Tom Hartman program. Thank you again, Joe. Thank you. I want to do a deep dive into The Reckoning, Mary Trump's new book, uh, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. Mary, of course, has a Ph.D. from the Derner Institute of Advanced Psychological Studies at Adelphi University, has taught graduate courses in trauma, psychotherapy, developmental psychology, recently launched a Substack newsletter, The Good in Us, to which I subscribe. So I know that she just came back from Amsterdam and had some great pizza there and, and uh I don't know. Hopefully it's not all that jet lagged. And of course, the author of uh, her previous book, Too Much and Never Enough, my Fa- How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man, and her current book, The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. Her website, marytrump.substack.com, and her Twitter handle, Mary L. Trump, at Mary L. Trump. Mary, welcome to the program. Or welcome back to the program. It's, it's nice to have you back with us. Uh, Tom, it's great to be here. And I actually do have jet lag, but I'm so excited to be on with you that I feel great. Oh, bless you. Thank you. Um, Your your book provokes uh, so many questions. (laughs) And and there's so many things I wanted to talk to you about. I'm I'm really glad that you're uh, able to make the the hour with us and we can do this conversations with great minds deep dive here that, that we rarely do with with uh, people and authors, but uh, uh, certainly you're one of the people that I really wanted to do this with. Let let me just start with the question, um, your thoughts on the probability, possibility that your Uncle Donald will run for president in 2024. It looks to me, you know, we know in the first three months of this year, I guess it was, that he raised 100 million bucks. I'm on his his list. I, I sent $15 to him you know, along with about a dozen other candidates back in 2015 during the Republican primary. And so I'm getting seven or eight emails a day from him, from his sons, from his friends, from Rudy, you know, begging for money. And I'm guessing that they are dinging the accounts, particularly of elderly people on the edge of dementia who don't remember that yesterday they also gave to Trump. Um, I, th- I think, you know, it looks to me like he's just wiping out old people across the country, but maybe I'm completely wrong. But, you know, it seems to me like this is just another big scam to raise money. He's probably raised two, three hundred million dollars so far um, rather than an actual attempt to run for president. What, th- what say you? Well, first of all, I think you're very brave <laughs> to be on those lists. Like, I couldn't get all those emails. It would make me insane. Well, this um, is what I do for yeah. a living. <laughs> I know. I know. And that's why I'm glad we have you. Thank you. <laughs> so I don't have to. But, um, I, I mean, I think part of it is the fact that um, anybody is allowed to do this without having it be regulated or without having to make an account is a huge problem with our our system. Um, but getting to, back to the broader question, is, is he going to run? First of all, I kind of resent that people like you and I have to take that question seriously because I believe we do. Um, I just wish that, you know, the mainstream media would, would ask 
uh, more important question is why is he be why would he be allowed to run? Mm. Um, but you know, here we are. Um, I have to say that my my thinking on this issue has evolved since the 2020 election. Immediately after that, when he lost so badly to Joe Biden um, and was completely humiliated because in my family, like losing is pretty much the worst thing you can do. And being a loser is the worst thing you can be. I said he would never put himself in that position again to suffer such an egregious narcissistic injury. However, what we saw over time was the Republican Party starting to either to back his big lie or remain silent in the face of it and allow and allow him to perpetuate it. That, of course, being that the 2020 election was illegitimate uh, and it was stolen from him because he, of course, won. None of that is true. And then January 6th happened. And as we've seen over time, the Republican Party has also backed him and not put up a fight and not, um, you know, they're not supporting the January 6th committee, et cetera. So I think um, that that eliminates one obstacle to his running. The other issue is that um, the Republican Party is also making it easier for him to run and not lose. In other words, as you know, in every single state, Republican legislatures are trying to push through voter suppression bills. Mm -hmm. So if they can manage to rig the system even more in their favor, and obviously the system is very rigged towards Republicans, um, and Donald gets that message that if he runs, he can't lose, he might simply because, although yes, Scamming money off of old people is something that he really likes to do. He also probably wants to avoid a lot of the legal jeopardy he's currently facing, both criminally and civilly. So he may come to the conclusion that the best place for him to be is the Oval Office, uh, which would afford him the powers and protections that he probably is really missing right about now. I hope that doesn't happen. His health is also a big concern. Um, and if the wheels of justice could start revolving a little faster, that would be very helpful. But, I, you know, I don't think it's a settled issue one way or the other at the moment. Yeah, I, 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 I understand and agree. How, you know, the, the Republican Party has changed so consequentially in the last six months, I mean, or last six years, excuse me. I, I mean, yeah. just, just remember the people that, that Trump was running against in the primary, you know, who who, uh, you know, there were, there were a few crackpots, but, but you know, the people like Jeb Bush were just old line mainstream Republicans who just basically wanted to help out rich people with tax cuts and, and you know, have a decent life. And mm -hmm. now you've got a Republican Party the, the, whose heroes are people like Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who uh, respectively said, uh, Cawthorn, uh, after the Rittenhouse verdict, said, you know, Republicans need to be armed and dangerous. And, Marjorie Taylor Greene was talking about, you know, blood is the way that you overcome tyranny and this kind of this kind of uh, civil war rhetoric and it, it, almost always in the context of race. I mean, it, it, it has gone from being the party that the dog whistles about race uh, from Nixon's southern strategy to Reagan's first public speech as a candidate for president. And, you know, down in Mississippi and Philadelphia, Mississippi, where the where Schwarmer, Goodman, and Cheney were murdered, and 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 you know the Willie Horton ads of George W. Bush. I mean, we we know that there's been this racial component, but but your your uncle just turned it into a, a front and center thing that people are just essentially proud of. They're no longer even embarrassed by. How right. deep do you think that goes in the GOP? I mean, are are most of these people? Just opportunists who are saying, "Okay, this is a uh, this is a white supremacist, white nationhood moment in America." So I'm going to ride that wave. Or are these people who have always really believed that white people are the pinnacle of evolution, are destined to rule, that uh, people of color should be in an inferior status, and women, by the way, as well? Although we hear less about that, but that seems to be a, mm -hmm. a subset of their agenda. You know, mm -hmm. what, what's going on in the Republican Party here? I think it's a combination of both, plus the fact that they see an opportunity that I don't believe would have would have necessarily presented itself uh, before Donald. 
Um, although, let's be clear, I think Mitch McConnell has doing has been doing his um, part to um, make sure that the Republican Party maintains power at no matter cost, no matter what cost, even before Donald came on the scene. But what he did do was show them that you can basically get away with anything as long as you keep pushing the envelope and refuse to take responsibility. So uh, the demographic uh, changes in this country have kind of created a sense of urgency that uh, combined with the fact that they are opportunists who are either comfortable making use of um, racist tropes or who are themselves white supremacists. And I guess if you're comfortable being with racism, then uh, you probably are a white supremacist. Uh, has has pushed them to this point where they are absolutely willing to do anything to hold on to power, no matter how illegitimately they um, acquire it. And that's that's why this moment we, we face is so dangerous, because they are running out of time. They know that if there were a level playing field, if everybody who is entitled to vote in this country was allowed to vote in this country, Republicans, I don't believe, could ever win a national election again. Um, They're trying to fix it so that Democrats can never win an election again, national election again, through this insane gerrymandering they're doing and the voter suppression bills that they're ramming through, because they only need three states to flip. Yeah, it, it is uh, it is truly breathtaking. We're talking with Mary Trump about her new book, Mary L. Trump, Ph.D., uh, her new book, The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. And we will get to that as well. Stick around. We'll be right back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So, Mary, the first part of that question was, how has how has your uncle changed the Republican Party? And, and my understanding of your answer was basically he showed them how far you can push the envelope. And now they're jumping into that. Um, yeah. So the second part of the question is, how long will that last? I mean, what's it going to take for the Republican Party to pull back from that or to uh, I, I, I mean, is it is it is it going to take a, a moral moment or is it going to take electoral defeat or are we destined to see a, a political party that, you know, sort of like the, the National Socialists did in 1933 or in, in 1924 in Italy, the, you know, the Mussolini's party that that that's they're now on a path that they can't turn away from until they they flip the country essentially fascist. Yeah, I, I don't think that they have any incentive uh, to abandon, either abandon Donald or to abandon um, the the path they're currently on. I, I think we saw in the gubernatorial election in Virginia that uh, Youngkin was trying to find a way to thread the needle of 
maintaining Donald's support without embracing it necessarily. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think the Republicans are discovering that um, they can they can continue to embrace Trumpism, so-called, without Donald. But there, there appears uh, they, to be quite a backlash in Virginia right now where Youngkin is being trashed on right-wing message boards left and right. Uh, he hired a guy who was gay on his staff, and that's just like uh, produced this total freakout among you know the mm-hmm. Trump folks. Yeah, um, and, and that's, that's definitely a lesson, sure, but he did win with, um, you know, with this strategy of right. kind of keeping Donald at arm's length. Uh, and it obviously, you know, doing something as egregious as hiring a gay person in today's Republican Party will get you backlash. But I think they're all going to learn um, what what line they have to toe. And, you know, if, if you if you see the cravenness of people like Ted Cruz, uh, who, by the way, if we had been unfortunate enough to have Ted Cruz as president in 2016, would have dealt with COVID like a sane person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, they are all willing to go down this, this very dark road. Uh, so I think they will come to the point where they really they don't need him anymore and that it's just going to take off without him. Because, I mean, unless I'm wrong, he's not immortal. He won't be around forever. And at that point, um, all of the things that they they helped him, uh, that he helped them reveal about who they are, will have taken even stronger root. And let's be clear, Donald hasn't done anything new. He hasn't changed the Republican Party. He's just revealed who they've always been, I think, at least in my lifetime. Yeah, and and uh, you know, much like the Republicans bound themselves to St. Ronnie uh, after he vanished from the public scene, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. you know when he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, uh, they can, you know, he had shown them that you can destroy the unions, and Democrats can't stop you, and America will not condemn you, and they were like, whoa, really, you know, and and uh, so it seems like yeah. they they will continue down this road. It's, it, it, the past is, is prologue to the future. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Mary L. Trump, whose new book is The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. Her newsletter's over at marytrump.substack.com. We're talking with Mary L. Trump. Her new book is The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. And you can find her newsletter over at marytrump.substack.com. You can tweet her at Mary L. Trump. Mary, we were, we, we, you know, we've been talking about the, the Republican Party and, and how it is changing. And, and I want to, in, in, in a small way, come back to that in a little bit. But um, I'm, I'm wondering what, as a psychologist, and a keen political observer, and, and that's one of the things that has always most impressed me about you is your ability to, to, to understand the, 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 the psychological impact of politics and the political impact of, of changes, psychological changes in our society and, and the psychology of the individual politicians, prob, you know, in, in, in part from your own experience and in part, I'm guessing, from watching your uncle go through this stuff. Um, but. Uh, the question is, what does what does your uncle Donald Trump have in common psychologically with autocrats that we've seen in the past? I, I, I know Hitler comparisons are considered kind of over the top, but, you know, there's Mussolini, there's Franco, there's there's uh, Pinochet, there's uh, or in the modern era. I mean, you know, people like Modi in India or Duterte in the Philippines or Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, all people who aspire to be, you know, Mussolini level autocrats. What do they have in common psychologically? Well, I, I mean, a very deep narcissism, uh, which covers over an even deeper insecurity. Um, you know, these are men who refer to strong men, but uh, the fact that they need the attention, that they they crave that level of power, to me, suggests that they're incredibly weak. Um, however, they're incredibly good, uh, and I think Donald might be better at this than anybody, certainly better at this than anybody I've ever met. Uh, they're incredibly good at finding 
people who are weaker than they are, which is a trick and a half, uh, because Donald's the weakest person I've ever met in my life. Um, and they're, they're very, very good at uh, instilling fear in people and transforming that fear into anger. Because fear is a terribly uncomfortable emotion. It doesn't feel good. But you need it. Uh, in order to turn it into an anger and sometimes even a rage that can be used uh, for your own purposes if you aspire to be an autocrat. Uh, so I think Donald definitely um, shares all of, all of those traits with the men you mentioned. Um, with this difference, I have never seen anybody who aspires to um, be an autocrat and, and be a peer with other autocrats who acts so um, insecure and um, inferior around other strongmen. You know, the way he is around uh, Putin is ki- almost inexplicable to me. Oh, he, he's you a lapdog 101. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, and you don't see Putin, Bolsonaro, uh, Duterte, et cetera, acting like that around anybody. So it's that part is kind of stunning. Um, but unfortunately, has, he has a lot more in common with them than not. Why don't why don't Republicans recognize that, you know, Trump is behaving like a sniveling uh, underling to people like Putin? You know, it's very interesting um, to think about that. And I tried, when I was writing my first book, um, I tried very, very hard to be objective. I took a step back. I tried to figure out what I was missing. There are tens of millions of people who support Donald. There are tens of millions of people who admire him. What are they admiring that I am not seeing? And then I realized something crucially important. The things they admire, it's not that they they found something that that I missed. The things they admire in him are the things I revile. Uh, And that's the trick. Yeah, amazing. I want to get into authoritarianism and the slide toward fascism and what do we do about racism in this country with Mary Trump. Uh, Her new book, The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. Absolutely brilliant book, by the way. And check out her newsletter at marytrump.substack.com. It's really worth subscribing to. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Conversations with Great Minds with Dr. Mary L. Trump, uh, who has recently launched a new newsletter at marytrump.substack.com. You can tweet her at Mary L. Trump and is the author, uh, most specifically relevant to this conversation today, uh, with a new book, The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. Mary, uh, by coincidence, during the break for uh, the, the maybe a third to a half of our audience that are listening on nonprofit radio stations, um, the, during the break, the, uh, the book report that we ran while our commercial stations were doing news was uh, from John Dean and Robert Altmaier, their book, The Authoritarians. 
or, and, and John Dean's book, Conservatives Without Conscience, is, is, is based on that as well. Um, I'm, you know, I'm sure as a psychologist you're familiar with this whole idea of authoritarian personalities and that arguably, according to Altmaier anyway, 20% roughly of any uh, population, any national population have authoritarian tendencies. Most are authoritarian followers. Occasionally you get authoritarian leaders. Um, what is, what, uh, A, I'm, I'm curious your, your thoughts on that, and B, what, how does that inform our politics and the role in our politics that your uncle has played and that the Republican Party has been playing over the last, arguably the last 40 years, as, as you know, starting with Nixon's law and order thing, as they've been taking more and more and more, uh, progressively more authoritarian positions, particularly with regard to, uh, you know, people of color. It's, it's entirely correct that approximately 20% of any population has authoritarian personality or authoritarian leanings. And as you said, uh, that does not mean that you are uh, want to become an authoritarian leader. It means that as a, you're more comfortable being a follower, you prefer uh, the status quo, change scares you, you like homogeneity. Um, but it's not a political. It doesn't mean you're more reactionary than anything else. So what I think has happened, though, is that the Republicans have gotten quite good at co-opting such people, and the Democrats haven't figured out how to. Now, for example, one of the most diabolical things Donald did was divide us uh, during COVID at a time we most needed to be united. Now, Authoritarian personalities like to be the us in an us versus them scenario. A kind, empathetic, smart leader would have been able to bring those people into the camp, so to speak, by saying it's us, America, against this deadly virus. Donald, on the other hand, because he needs division, he thrives on division, made it us MAGA, you know, Donald supporters, the Make America Great Again crowd, against people of color, people in blue states, Democrats. Uh, so, you know, it's not at all just because 20 percent of the population is authoritarian. That's not they're not hopelessly uh, entrenched in right wing politics. We just need to figure out how to talk to them more effectively. What would be your suggestion to Democrats about how to talk to those Americans, that, that 20 percent of Americans who really just want, you know, strong daddy or mommy in charge? Yeah, I, you know, that, 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 that's a lot harder to do now uh, because, one, the, the Donald made it so clear that they're, the only way for them to be considered viable was to support him wholeheartedly. We have Fox News uh, spreading his propaganda, spreading their own propaganda. Um, we have this situation in which they're responding more to conspiracy theories, no matter how insane, other than uh, rational thought. Uh, so it's it's not a quick fix. I think the first most obvious thing Democrats need to do is make American the American people's lives better, and they need to act like they're in charge because they are. But the clock mm. is ticking; time is running out. You know, um, you, you were talking earlier about the incredible statistics. Uh, regarding, or sorry, the data regarding what a small minority has veto power over the rest of us. Um, America is not a democracy. That's one of the reasons why. The Electoral College is another, and the filibuster is, an, is the one that, that you were referring to. I mean, the Democrats, if they want to make sure, one, that America, America, the American people's lives are better, and two, that America remains or at least continues to have the potential to become a democracy, they need to do the most basic thing and get rid of the filibuster, and then we can, we'll see what happens. But, you know, until such time as, as they do that, I'm deeply afraid that we will never get to the point where we can start to educate people in a way that, that is helpful to them. And I, and I think it would be important for Democrats to realize that the authoritarians loved Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, 
you know, he 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 came out here. here this is uh, this is on the 360, Sean. If you can fire it up, um, this is this is FDR. I mean, responding to attacks from Republicans, right? Um, Never before in all our history have these forces been so united against one candidate as they stand today. They are unanimous in their hate for me, and I welcome their hatred. And that, that speaks to those authoritarians, you know, followers who are not fascists. They just want some strong character in Washington, D.C. to make the country better. And why can't Democrats learn that lesson now? I don't know. And it, it, and it is so effective. And honestly, I, would, I think a lot of people would find it a refreshing alternative to the politics of white grievance and whining <laughs> that goes on that certainly Donald uh, perfected. Uh, so I, I do not know, um, but they need to figure it out really quickly because what we need now is strength, unity, and effective messaging. Yeah. Um, let's talk about race for a moment. You, you talk about this a lot in your book. The, the issue of race uh, is threaded throughout your new book, The Reckoning. Uh, our nation's trauma and finding a way to heal. Because, of course, that's one of the largest and deepest scars in our national psyche um, uh, throughout history. What, how does, let me back up a little bit. There was a study that was published a couple of years ago that really got my attention. I'm, I'm guessing you probably saw it, um, where they had taken white rats and black rats you know, just lab rats that have been bred to have white fur or black fur. And they created this plastic tube. It was about eight inches long and about three inches in diameter that had a door that could easily be opened from the outside, but not from the inside. And so it was, it, it was like a trap that could be opened from the outside by a rat. They put a black rat in that and put that plastic, clear plastic tube in a cage with a bunch of white rats. And the white rats didn't try to rescue the black rat as much as he tried to get out. They reversed it, you know, with black, you know, reversed the, the race, as it were, of the rats. Same deal. Then they took, in the next generation of rats, when the next litters of rats were born, they took half the black pups from the black mother and had the white mother nurse them, and took half the white pups from the white mother and had the black mother nurse them. And then, so all these black and white rats grew, to, grew up together, literally. Mm -hmm. And then they repeated the experiment, and this time, all regardless of what color the fur of the rat was, the rats tried to help the rat of the same, uh, you know, help tr tr the rat escape. Whereas before, they had only let, they'd only helped the rats of the same colored fur escape. And they had differentiated, you know, they'd seen this differentiation. Do you see a parallel between that study and how, you know, how we're dealing with this in the United States? I mean, is... Yeah. You know, we tried this with busing back in the 70s. You know, let's let's just push people together. I, I think it actually did some good, but but now our schools are more segregated than they were in 1968. What do we do mm -hmm. about this? Yeah, well, yes, it's a fascinating study. And, it, it you know, the <laughs> one takeaway is that, wow, race is a construct even for lab rats. That's right. Um, right. So I, I don't know that we've ever tried hard enough because, yes, busing uh, was a potentially effective way. But remember, it was all, it was all a one-way street. Only black children were, were bused to white schools. White children were not bused to black schools yeah. because black schools, because of the system, were inferior because they weren't funded properly. Um, I mean, entirely for reasons having to do uh, at the governmental level. Well, it's why we um, it's why we pay for schools with property taxes. I mean, that 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 goes back to the 1890s, and the whole point was keep the poor neighborhoods with crappy schools. That's right, and we will never have equity equity and adequacy in this country if that continues. It's despicable. I've always found it despicable. Don't understand it at all. Um, but that's the way it is right now, and we also need to understand, um, as you do, that segregation of neighborhoods and schools isn't de facto, it's de jure. And right Under now, law. that's the case. Right. Uh, it's, it's at the government, local, state and federal level, uh, neighborhoods and schools are segregated intentionally. And 
now the reason they're more segregated than ever is largely because of Chief, Chief Justice John Roberts. Right. Uh, so it's, I personally think that one of the best ways to, to start to deal with this, and this is a decades, generations-long project, is for us to start recognizing, at the very least, how we got here and how white supremacy and white privilege continue to be, I think, are this country's biggest problems. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're, we're seeing more and more minorities in the media, and I think that that's a good step. It's, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, bringing us together and waking people up to the essential humanity of people who don't look like them. Right. But, boy, we've got a long way to go. We're talking with Dr. Mary L. Trump. Her new book is The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. So, Mary, I'm looking at, uh, there's this newsletter called The Writing, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, and their subtitle is Alerting Liberal Audiences to Today's Headlines from the Right. You know, like, we read the right-wing stuff so you don't have to. Here are some of the headlines from the last 24 hours from major right-wing sites like World Net Daily and the Washington Free Beacon and Big League Politics and, and The Federalist and The Daily Caller and The National Review. Five dead in Waukesha, thanks to the left. The Waukesha, now it turns out the Waukesha driver was a black guy. So, number two, the Waukesha slaughter and the plague of black racism. Um, meet the progressive DA behind the Waukesha bail catastrophe. Uh, it, 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 the persecution of Kyle Rittenhouse. Tucker Carlson's fascinating interview with Rittenhouse. Censoring the pilgrims. Um, it, the nation's top scientists lied about COVID and got away with it. I mean, it just, it's this, this continual drumbeat of, either racism or embracing Trumpism that seems to me to be disconnected from reality, but they're, they're living in a, in a, in a bubble that, that is whole to them. How do you penetrate that? Um, yeah, I just want to add that it doesn't help that papers like uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times uh, continue to pile on to Democrats. And the fact that there's no corollary on the left to counter this kind of insanity. Um, Well, I I kind of feel about that the way I feel about, uh, you know, people who voted for Donald the second time around. Um, I I don't want to waste my time on them. I know that's that's not a great answer, but there's nothing. I don't think there's anything we can do right now to um, to change the minds of people who are susceptible to that. They've been so convinced over time that being white is not only the most important thing about them, but it's kind of the only thing they have because they keep voting for people who, you know, won't give them uh, childcare or healthcare or uh, job security uh, or unions, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and, you know, the best way to think about it is I, I think about the, the Pizzagate scandal. People were more willing to believe that Hillary Clinton was, was running a child pedophilia ring in a basement in a pizza place that didn't have a basement than they were to believe that that was nonsense. So, again, I think at this point it's simply policy. We have to make people's lives better and convince them or remind them, I should say, that not only is government a force for good or can be in the right hands for good, but that the government is us. It's not some alien entity that's out to get us. It's us. And they've been convinced that that's not the case. You know, keep your government keep your government's hands off of my social security. Right. Think about the ignorance that's necessary. You know, an edu- like the, the longer term solution is, of course, education. We need to f- teach civics in a way that's meaningful from the time kids are in elementary school. We need to teach critical thinking and as be- it's becoming more and more important, we need to teach media literacy too. Yeah, and they're doing that in Finland. Did you catch that story a couple months ago? Oh, I did it. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it's just remarkable. We're talking with Mary Trump. Her new book is The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal.
Welcome back. We're talking with Mary L. Trump, author of The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. You can find her newsletter at marytrump.substack.com, and you can tweet her at Mary L. Trump. Mary, uh, your book is titled The Reckoning, and the subtitled Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. Let me, in the last you know, five minutes or so that we have here, let me just toss this to you. What is our nation's trauma, and how do we find ways to heal? What is the reckoning? Our nation's trauma, the, the original traumas, uh, were the genocide committed against the native population by white people, and the enslavement and genocide of the African population we kidnapped from their homelands. Um, and the reason the the um, the impact of those things uh, c continue to be operative in American society is because not only have we never atoned for them, we barely acknowledge them. So white supremacy has continued to be an, an enormously influential uh, belief system in uh, American society, white society in particular, and. Um, it's also now a major platform in one of our two major political parties. As you said, there aren't dog whistles anymore. It's just blatant. It, you, you, know, you need to prove your racist bona fides in order to be a Republican. Um, and the other uh, reason I think that the traumas have been perpetuated over time and that people have become more and more susceptible to accepting uh, criminality and anti-constitutional behavior in their leaders is because America has never held powerful white men accountable for anything, starting with Robert E. Lee, uh, who, by the way, not only was a general for the Confederacy and a traitor to his country, but he owned and tortured human beings, was never punished sufficiently. He became president of Washington University after the Civil War, which was renamed in his honor posthumously. And then Gerald Ford pardoned him in 1974. I mean, it's just absolutely insane. If Robert E. Lee can't be held accountable, do we really expect Donald Trump to be? And if he's not, then there is literally no limit to what people like him or in his party will try to get away with. So how do we heal? We heal by looking just as an individual who's been traumatized heals. You face the truth about your trauma. You recognize it. You have to get to the point where even though, you know, I'm not responsible for slavery. You're not responsible for slavery. But we have to recognize the ways in which we have benefited from a system that continues to preference white privilege. Um, so, because if we don't, the problems continue. So we need to look in the face and say, okay, I'm part of the problem. What can I do to change it? We need to do that as individuals. We need to do that as a country. And we need to do it as as soon as humanly possible. And we need to stop pretending that it's in the past. Mm -hmm. You know, as Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative said, slavery didn't end in 1865. It just evolved. Yeah, well, it's actually still legal in the United States, according to the 13th Amendment. You just have to do it under color of law. You know, somebody who's been That's convicted right. of a crime can still yep. be held in slavery and, and frankly, are yep. all across the United States. Um, Absolutely. It's, it, it's an absolutely extraordinary. The, the book is brilliant. It's called The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. The author is Mary Trump and uh, New York Times bestselling author. Check out her newsletter at marytrump.substack.com. Free subscriptions there, too. And also you can tweet her at Mary L. Trump. Mary, thanks so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you again. Tom, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. My pleasure, too. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is America on Fire by Dr. Elizabeth Hinton. The subtitle, The Untold Story of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. I'm reading from the introduction. On a cold Monday at the start of February, Joseph McNeil, Franklin McCain, Ezell Blair Jr., and David Richmond sat down at a whites-only lunch counter at Woolworths in Greensboro, North Carolina. A waiter refused to serve the young men and suggested they order takeout instead. The four North Carolina A&T students remained at the counter. The store manager approached and asked them to leave. Still, they did not move. A police officer arrived, slapping his nightstick in his hand 
in an attempt to intimidate. Rather than allow the student's offense against Jim Crow to continue, the manager of the store closed the store for the day. Two dozen black students returned on Tuesday. Over 50 black students and three white students participated in the sit-in on the next day, Wednesday, February 3rd, 1960. News of the protests spread, and soon the sit-in movement had expanded to 55 cities and 13 states. By April, over 50,000 students were involved. Conceived and organized entirely by young people, the sit-in movement ultimately led to the founding of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, SNCC, which was run by activists such as John Lewis and Stokely Carmichael. As a Fisk student, Lewis participated in the sit-ins in Nashville, Tennessee, and he would go on to steer the Freedom Riders in the summer of 1961 and speak at the March on Washington in 1963. Carmichael joined the sit-in movement as a high school student and would famously call for black power at the SNCC rally in Greenwood, Mississippi in 1966. Together, Lewis, Carmichael, and tens of thousands of other young black Americans signaled that their generation was prepared to risk their lives for freedom and equality. From Greensboro onward, the sit-ins helped build momentum and support for racial justice. The students in Greenboro engaged in a nonviolent protest to demand full integration, the right to vote, equal educational opportunities, decent jobs, protection against white supremacist terrorism, and an end to police violence. These were the central aims of the civil rights movement more broadly. By the end of the decade, black students at North Carolina A&T State University were still protesting. But now they were destroying property, assaulting police officers, and shooting in the direction of law enforcement, if not coming close to killing cops in self-defense. In May 1969, after black students at Greensboro's James B. Dudley High School were arrested, brutalized and tear gassed by police during a series of protests against arbitrary disciplinary measures, A&T students came to the teenagers' defense. The confrontations between local police and black high school and college students led authorities to call the National Guard to A&T's campus, unleashing violence and repression that ended in the killing of sophomore Willie Grimes. A pivotal stop on the road to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, by the end of the decade, Greensboro was a site of sustained violence. It was far from unique in this regard. Between 1964 and 1972, but especially between 68 and 72, the United States endured internal violence on a scale not seen since the Civil War. Every major urban center in the country burned during those eight years. Violence flared up not only in archetypal ghettos, including Harlem and Watts, and in majority black cities such as Detroit and Washington, D.C. It appeared in Greensboro, North Carolina, in Gary, Indiana, in Seattle, Washington, and countless places in between. Every city, small or large, where black residents lived in segregated, unequal conditions. In the North and the South, the East and the West, the Rust Belt and the Sun Belt, Black people threw rocks and bottles at police, shot at them with rifles, smashed the windows of businesses and institutions, hurled firebombs, and plundered local stores. These events, what we commonly call riots, or what people who are to the left of center sometimes refer to as civil disturbances, caused hundreds of millions of dollars of property damage. Most immediately, they shaped the lives of the store owners whose businesses were destroyed, of the parents who lost their teenage sons to the police, and of the firefighters and cops who were harmed or killed. But ever since, Americans have been living in a nation and a national culture created in part by the extreme violence of the 1960s and the early 1970s. The aftershocks of that era have, at times, taken the form of mass violence in which all, to which all Americans have been witness. In Miami in 1980, in Los Angeles in 1992, in Cincinnati in 2001, and in more recent years, in Ferguson, Missouri, Baltimore, Maryland, and Minneapolis, Minnesota. The enduring impact of the violence of the 60s and 70s has been felt more regularly and more acutely by black people in American cities who faced new policing practices that emerged under the banner of the war on crime, the routine stop and frisks that attacked people's dignity, the breaking up of community gatherings, the presence of armed, uniformed officers in the hallways of under-resourced public schools, and more. Such strategies help repress mass violence 
as a regular phenomenon, but they ironically made further riots inevitable. Those strategies remain in place today. The book, America on Fire. Tom in Champaign, Illinois. Hey, Tom, what's up? Hey, hi, Tom. Do you remember discussing a thing called InfraGuard? It's like a, you, you apply to it. It's do with the FBI and Homeland Security. And oh, I was yeah. This many, was like where basically you can well, become a junior GI man. Yeah. Well, how many of the people on January 6th were part of that organization? You think so, or you're suggesting it, or you know it? I'm, I, I don't know. I'm you're just speculating. wondering. Yeah, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that, Tom. Um, but it is an interesting thing to, it would be an interesting thing to kind of poke around with. Hey, thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy requires all of us, and that includes you. So please, get out there, get active. There's great groups that you can join to get a lot done, not to mention the Democratic Party. Tag, you're it. Have a great afternoon and be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.